as my friend uh, Marty said, I am from Dove Mountain Church, just across the way, a sister congregation. And um, it's really cool to be here, to see everyone. Um, I was reminded when I pulled up this morning with uh, Mr. Riggleman over there, when we were in Presbytery back in January, um, I don't know if many of you know Jason Bobo. He's the RUF university guy up at ASU, or at least he was. And he's just always cutting up and just, you know, no regard for anything. And so he's, uh, he kept making comments about, uh, about Dick's coat, which was a nice, very vintage jacket. <laughs> and it was, it was the kind of thing that, you know, apparently Jason really liked. So Jason kept talking about it, talking about it. So the very last thing I remember was when Dick stood up and goes, here, if you like it, it's yours. And he took it off and handed it to him. And Jason had this shocked, like embarrassed look on his face, and he wouldn't take it back. So Jason still has that coat. And I thought, man, that's the gospel right there. You know, taking the coat off his back. It was, it was fantastic. And that really happened. So, well, um, again, good morning. And uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 4. Uh, in preparing for this sermon, I wanted to learn a little bit more about slander. And so um, I typed in a couple of names under the internet, into Google, and to see what popped up. And one name I entered just brought up all kinds of stuff. And it was, uh, it was amazing. My computer almost crashed with how much slander was on this. And uh, I put in a very polarizing figure, I admit. It was the former governor of the great state of Alaska, Sarah Palin. I plugged that in because I thought, well, this is, people feel one way or the other. And just, it was an unbelievable amount of, um, of anger and uh, things written about her family, about her. I also typed in somebody that I wasn't a big fan of uh, as a Cleveland fan, LeBron James. For you basketball fans, he was our guy. He was our Michael Jordan, and he left. He's another guy. You type in that name, and you just see the most angry things written about these people. And I started thinking... Now, what would I do if I was in their shoes or the shoes of the, one of their loved ones? I mean, if you type in Steve Johnson into Google, you get like 250,000 responses. And I'm probably like 223,051. And it, no one cares. I'm not a high-profile person. And I'm guessing no one here is, at least not nationally. Chris Smith might be eventually. But right now, <laughs> right now, nobody here really, if you type in our names into Google, it's, it's going to come up with, with a, a board talking about them. Well, just because we're not big-time celebrities or political figures, does that mean that we're not um, slandered? Does that mean that, that we're not susceptible to people saying or doing things, maligning us, uh, dragging our name through the mud? And obviously... We go through this. We have gone through this. You can probably think of a handful of times when uh, you've been slandered, either on a small scale or sometimes it is on a larger scale. And, uh, and that's actually where the psalmist uh, is at. This is where we find David. So now if you'll read with me, um, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 4. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and in your, 
your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Father, would you please bless this discussion on your word? Would you open our eyes to new truths, Lord? Would you speak here today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, relief from slanderous enemies. We find David in a bad place. He's brooding. Uh, His enemies have brought allegations against him, and they've accused him of things that even though the text never specifies, we know that they're troubling him. And it hangs over him. I don't know if you've ever had that, but even if you can say without a doubt that what's being said about you isn't true, it still bugs you that somebody out there might believe that. And that's where David is. So left with nothing but his frustrations, he turns to God. And this passage is an evening prayer, which kind of leads us to believe that it was one offered up as he was laying there unable to sleep. And when you think about David sitting and stewing, uh, it's kind of refreshing. It's nice to see such a a biblical hero acting so normal. David has no specific request other than just asking for peace of mind. Now, the source of David's anxiety is named in verse 2. And all he says is, O men... Now, we might simply use the term people. And this shouldn't be too foreign an idea for us, the idea of people getting under our skin. People are accusing him of things he didn't do, and they're tarnishing his reputation. And it's funny, because when you think of someone like David, you know, uh, we kind of go chronologically the way we were taught. When you think David, you think little David and big Goliath. You think King David, and you go all the way through. You go to David and Bathsheba, and then all the way, the whole narrative. David... David does still have the reputation of the man after God's own heart. And it's interesting to think about reputations because if you're an honest person, if you have a reputation of being honest, people want to do business with you. They want to confide in you, open up to you. If you have a reputation of being a dishonest person, then just the opposite is going to take place. Probably people don't want to do business with you. They won't trust you. They won't um, enter that level of intimacy and friendship with you. And we do value our reputations. And it's funny because whenever you hear people talking about reputations, usually the terms are good or bad. A good reputation, a bad reputation. Very rarely do you get someone with a varying degree to say, like, well, his reputation is strong to moderately strong. It's the two polars. And that's why it's such a big deal that we, uh, when we look at our reputations, we're nervous. We want to make sure that we fall into that good category. Now, that's because our reputations are tied pretty, pretty closely to our identity. Now, hopping down to verse 3, David asked God, how long? How long will this be allowed to go on? And that is a fair and honest question. He's feeling hemmed in by the constraints of his human enemies. And David calls out to the righteous one, the one who knows of his innocence, to answer his enemies for him. Speak on his behalf. And see, here we, we see David do something really interesting. He begins to answer his own question. And he defines his identity, not in terms of himself, but in terms of who he is in the Lord. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now he does two things here. First, he recognizes his innocence and set-apartedness as one who belongs to God. 
Okay, so he's shifting. It's not David's reputation anymore. It's his reputation in God. And second, he goes from asking the Lord to hear him in verse 1 to declaring that the Lord hears him. It's like that moment when you come to grips with something and you realize, this isn't going to best me. It's like when the Rocky music starts and you think, okay, I can, I can do this. I'm going to get through this. But this isn't a situation of, you know, enemies, don't you know who I am? This is, don't you know who my father is? And I can't be taken down because of his protection. In the face of his enemies, David's request for God's deliverance from, from them becomes a statement of confidence. His name is weak. It's able to be impugned. His father's name is a different story. And it's that realization that starts to kind of shift the text here. Now, many of us are probably familiar with the Arthur Miller play, The Crucible. Um, I had to read it in high school, and I didn't realize that I would think about it 11 years down the road, but it fits here. Because it's the story of the Salem witch trials, and uh, really fascinating how any one person could accuse another of being a witch, basically because they didn't like them. They didn't have to have much proof. The burden of proof was on the accusee and not on the accuser. And in this book, one of the main characters, John Proctor, who's a down-to-earth, likable farmer, he's accused of being a witch. And as the story goes on, he's imprisoned, and he's given the option of just admitting to being a witch, at which point he would be free to go. So at first he takes that. He says, okay, I'll go with that right there. But then he realizes that his name is going to be put on a list that's going to be put on the church door, pretty public area. And all of a sudden he realizes, wow, this won't just ruin my name. This will tarnish the name of my sons and for generations to come. So he realizes I'm not going to do it. And, um, and there's that scene in the movie where he's standing up there and they ask him why he won't do it. And he yells, because it's my name. And he's just absolutely, everything is attached to that. And, uh, you know, we used to, we used to joke about the, the, the cheesiness of that scene. But if you really think about the passion behind it, that he realized what was in a name and why it was important. And it's the power of a good name. Now, David knows his name is being drug around, and there's not really anything he can do to stop it. And we all want to protect our reputations. We talked about that. But what this part of the text reminds us is that our good name is totally vulnerable to attacks. However, because we belong to God, he has set us apart. And it's his unslanderable holy name that we're given as his sons and daughters. Sure, our pride cringes when our name's spat on. It's a human reaction. But our Father is the God of justice and truth, and he will stand for us. Now, that brings us to the idea of of, uh, relief from self-reliance. Because again, it's tough to sit back and wait and just think, okay, well, eventually justice will come. I'm just going to sit here and listen to all of this. David's recognition that he belongs to God is something that we can all nod and say, oh, yeah, no, I agree, that's right, we belong to God. And, and it's easy to say that on a Sunday here in church. But we all have a tendency to want to control the aspects of our lives. All of us do, to varying degrees. And especially when we're being maligned. When we find that someone's speaking poorly of us and that it's spreading, whether we belong to God or not, we still feel incredibly helpless just by our natural reaction to it. It's part of our fallenness. We read stories about cyberbullying all the time. And most of you probably know what that is. It's what takes place. It tends to be high school girls that are the victims, but someone will put up a web page or something on Facebook or something that really just kind of slanders them. 
And then people will just come to that website for, for no other reason other than to just continue to slam this person. And it's an incredibly helpless spot for that individual who's being um, spoken poorly of. And it's really tough for their parents and anybody surrounding them. And it's a horrible thing that takes place a lot. And it spreads so fast that even if you, if you had the website taken down or you tried to confront the people that were posting, a lot of them are anonymous, there's no way that you can by yourself clear your name. And it's that sense of powerlessness and frustration that David has here. And that's what has him crying out to God in verse 1. But it also points to the thrust of verses 4 through 6. We are helpless to save ourselves. Self-reliance is futile. And realizing this, David is asking for God's grace to give him freedom from the accusations. Now this is an excellent takeaway for us as well. Part of our fallen condition means that we slander, and, and we are slandered. When we're slandered, we initially try to get to the bottom of it all to find out who started this, and to fix it. But then we find out that we are powerless. And that can lead to anxiety, and that can eat at us, and it'll feel like nothing can right that wrong. I mean, as we already said, David's laying up at night praying to God. David's request of God is recognition that God has always given him relief in the past. And that's an important thing to remember. It's like when my daughter Hannah will be up, for some reason she gets up on top of our cars all the time. And she wants to jump down. Not while they're driving. They're always parked. And she gets up there and she'll just go, Daddy, Daddy, you're going to catch me, right? You're going to catch me. You always catch me, right? I'm like, yeah, baby, just jump down. Come on, this is crazy. But you're going to catch me. Yes, I'm going to catch you. And it's funny because her appeals to my nature aren't for me. I'm not, I'm not going to let her fall. Her appeals to my nature are a reminder for her. And that's very true of our relationship with God. He doesn't need reminded of his perfect nature. But by recounting it, we help remind ourselves. And that's the first source of the peace there. Now this is, uh, this is largely the message of this psalm. We suffer, and our God not only hears us, but he has the power to give us relief from our suffering. The question is, do we really believe that we belong to, to God, and that he has the power to give us true and complete relief? Now, if you're like me, you tend to do all you can do and then ask God. Intrinsic in those actions, though, is a belief that we have at least some control. And really, we don't, not cosmically. Now, here's a quote by a man named Jerry Bridges that I think fits pretty nicely. Faith involves both a renunciation and a reliance. First, we must renounce any trust in our own performance as the basis of our acceptance before God. We trust in our own performance when we believe we've earned God's acceptance by our own good works. But we also trust in our own performance when we believe that we've lost God's acceptance by our bad works or by our sin. So we must renounce any consideration of either our bad works or our good works as the means of relating to God. Second, we must place our reliance entirely on the perfect obedience of the sin-bearing death of Christ as the sole basis of our standing before God, on our best days as well as our worst. And it's true. If we feel that we have so much control, that bleeds into other aspects of our spiritual life. A little part of us thinks, no, I was saved by God's grace, but there had to have been something that God saw in me. There had to have been something. And it's funny because in our Reformed tradition, we know that we were dead in our sins. But there are times where you look at it and you look at predestination with sinful eyes and you think, huh, I wonder why me? 
I do wonder why me. And that's wrong thinking. We are powerless. We're dead in our sins, and we're dead as sinners without Christ. Now, it is that relief that we find in the latter part of this text, relief from our weariness. We can't save ourselves. So then what do we do? Do we just throw our hands up and say, well, only God can do anything. I don't really have anything to do but twiddle my thumbs throughout this. See, no. Verses 4 and 5 give us several imperatives or commands, actions to take. And this is a huge gift because we've seen our fallen condition and we've seen our weakness. And now, instead of just saying, well, what's there to do? Here's a tangible action plan right in the text. And it's something that we can take with us to our cars this afternoon. Just don't get on top of them. First one, we're told to be angry without sinning. We're told to ponder, to be silent, to offer right sacrifices, and then finally to put our trust in the Lord. Now, like I said, this is a pretty valuable list. And it's refreshing to be given the power to address ourselves when we can't address the situation. It's very interesting also that this tells us what we can do in response. Not to stop it. That's already been placed in God's hands. But how do we respond when we find ourselves in that victim spot? Let's take a closer look at the five commands. The first one is, be angry without sinning. Now, this is not an unfamiliar idea to the Christian, but it is incredibly hard to do. As we examine our hearts in the light of this text, let's think about uh, the sins that we're most susceptible to when we're angry. Uh, yelling, cursing, blaming, accusing, uh, gossip. Now, gossip as we recount the misfortune to anyone who will listen. Because remember, we are the victims here. And so just by retelling the story, that couldn't possibly be a sin. But of course it is in how we do it. Um, lashing out. And that's just the stuff I do. There's probably stuff that you guys do too. But here's what it looks like to be angry without sinning. Ephesians 4, 29-32 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may, be, or that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Another text, James 1, 19-20 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now the next command is to ponder. And to ponder is defined as to think about something carefully, especially uh, before deciding or concluding. This is one I, I really struggle with. Uh, in the context of the verse, we're to think carefully about what's happening, what has been done to us, what we've done in response, and how God might use it to shape us. Now pondering is an act of inner searching. Next comes the one that perhaps I just keep saying I struggle with. I struggle with the most, and that is to be silent. You know, whereas pondering is an act of searching, uh, one must be silent or meditate in order to receive God's instruction in this, uh, his guidance. We tend to fire up arrow prayers, real one-sided conversations, and then think, okay, well, I didn't hear anything from God, so I better get back to fixing this myself. We have to be still. We have to be silent. And this is something that the average Christian struggles mightily with. You know, in our culture, you're only silent, really, when you're sleeping or reading. 
or waiting in an elevator. Those are really the three times that we are silent. Other than that, we're talking, we're on our phones. I mean, you can imagine I'm a talker and, and I, I look at this and I think, wow, how often am I really just silent and listening to God, especially when I'm stressed out? The next one is to offer right sacrifices. Now, this is a less obvious one by definition. Some versions say uh, sacrifice of righteousness. Now, this means that we are to offer real sacrifices, not just ones that are ritualistic, but sacrifices that have the full backing of our heart. Basically, when we're in a, a dark place, we can't just come here and expect to go through the motions and everything will be taken care of. And this is a real challenge when you're deeply hurt or angry. We tend to think that just getting out of bed to sit at church is a virtue in and of itself. We're to give cheerfully, to love unconditionally, and to worship selflessly, even when we're in that really tough spot. Then finally, where do we put our trust? The last part of that section says, to put our trust in the Lord. Now this seems like a no-brainer because it is. It's an act of the heart. Our fallen human brains tell us that we can be our own problem solvers. We can. But as we discovered in the middle part of this text, we're flat out helpless. Now we can sulk in our helplessness, or we can thrive in the strength of our Father. And that choice might just define us as well more than any other. Now, verses 7 and 8 show us again how this is a prayer of confidence. David's really starting to rally since we first found him a couple verses back. Um, when he was lamenting the evil of his enemies. But now, as we've watched uh, this, this passage uh, progress, he's made aware of the futility of the actions against him. He realizes that uh, God has made him much better off than they are. Um, the joy that God put in David's heart, as he says, is much greater than all the wine and grain or earthly possessions that his enemies are enjoying at that time. And that's another place where we find our peace to realize our final destiny is with Christ in heaven. And um, it's interesting. I, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the, um, the, the David, or um, goodness, Chan. What is his? Frank, uh, Francis Chan. There it is. Francis Chan illustration where he's got this incredibly long, long rope. And on the end of it, you don't even see where this other end is. It's off stage. And on this end, it's just colored red. And he's saying, all right, this is us. This is our identity into eternity. This little red part is our life now. He says, we are so caught up in this right here that we don't pay any attention to this huge chunk of rope that goes on forever and ever and ever. And it's funny because, I, of course, if someone asked me that, I would give them the Sunday school answer. Yeah, of course, this is my time on earth. This is just, you know, this is just the stop off before eternity. But if you really think of it in those terms, and the older I've gotten, the more I realize um, just how easily ensnared I am with little stuff that goes on in the red. And... That's kind of what David is realizing here. You know, at this point, he's down and he's being slandered. But his enemies, um, while they're living it up right now, their destiny is a horrible one. And that's not to say that we take solace in the fact that, well, they'll get theirs. No, we all deserve justice. We need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for the people that slander us. But we also need to hold on to that perspective and realize... This is such a teeny tiny speck in the grand scheme of things. So, in verse 8, we see the resolution of the text. David says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
In other words, thank you, God, I needed that. And to an outsider, David's conversation looks a lot like that classic kind of sitcom shtick where character A is sitting in the kitchen or wherever, and character B comes up and asks character A, you know, what's wrong? Character A just goes on this long, you know, woe is me dialogue, and then all of a sudden they start to kind of answer their own questions, and then by the end of their monologue they feel a lot better and they thank the other guy and they walk out. Well, you see that all the time in TV shows, and some people might think, well, is that just what happened here? That David just starts off kind of sniveling to God, and then he starts to feel better, and he realizes, wait a minute, I belong to God. Thanks, God, and he takes off. No, this, Psalm 4 is not a one-sided conversation. Um, again, as we talked about it, David had this relationship with the Lord. I mean, he's the psalmist. He had this open dialogue with God. And what we're seeing here is the benefit of having that. The psalms truly are poems and songs for the glory of God and for the encouragement and education of his people. Now, before this chapter, like I said, the heading said, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. This little conversation was very much intended for you and I. God is all over it, and his nature is revealed to David. It gives David encouragement and a solution. And what a wonderful application for us. When we feel overwhelmed and hurt, we need to take David's lead and speak to God, cry out to him. Remind ourselves of his nature and his promises, because it is a far better plan than anything that we could come up with otherwise. Now, like David, we have enemies. There are those in our lives uh, who cause us pain and frustration, even loved ones. And these trials wear us out. Our own reserve of strength is nothing. We're constantly coming face-to-face with our sinful nature and the sinful nature of others. Now, we can read self-help books, go to counseling, um, start our own web pages to, com- to combat the character assassination, try hundreds of other futile strategies. But at the end of the day, nothing can give us relief apart from God. Our name crumbles. His name stands for all time. We are weak. He's the source of all strength. I want to close with a quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It says, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough of that power himself. He asks your weakness because he has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and to use it as the instrument of his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of our weakness. And we're reminded of what sin has brought about here on earth and what we go through and what we put others through, Lord. And that can be such a depressing thing. But boy, are we thankful for your gospel and the hope that you just show us, even within this one text, Lord, that you stand with us. You stand for us. You want us to be concerned with how we react because ultimately you are the truth bringer. Father, please help us to remember this the next time we find ourselves in a crisis. Help us to have our first reaction be to cry out to you and and to respond the way David did, Lord, not to get ourselves in a tizzy and fret around in sin, Lord. Thank you for this day. We thank you for the overcast weather. And I pray that as we go on with the rest of our Lord's Day, that we would remember you on the Sabbath. Thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.